Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on the journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mike Fada. I'm super excited to uh, host my friend, Greg Fleischman, uh, the co-founder of Foodsters and many other natural product uh, ventures. For all of you joining us the first time, welcome. And for those that are returning again, I appreciate the support of these sessions. Uh, room flow for tonight. I'm going to, after our intros, I'm going to get Greg's thoughts on some topics. And then we're going to be inviting founders uh, up to uh, to ask a question uh, of Greg or I. Um, so if you are a natural product founders and have a question, you'll have a chance to, uh, to come up on stage and ask it. The room is scheduled for 90 minutes-ish, but Greg says we can stay longer if we're helping more natural product founders. We may have some other uh, guests that want to come out to and uh, and support. This room is now hosted under the Venture Park Club, which Greg and I are, and several other friends launched with Arlene Dickinson, um, which is really a pitch-to-profit uh, club helping with pitching investment and scaling CPG businesses. If you're not already, you can follow Venture Park Club and stay up to date with our events. Just click on the little green house at the top and be added to the uh, added to the club. Um, and this is a learning and networking event. This room normally has other natural product founders, but also retailers, distributors, and media. So check people out, uh, their profiles, connect with them, and let's see if we can help each other out. Um, for those that don't know my journey, um, I grew up poor with a single mom, left school at 13 to start working. I wasn't educated about health when I was young and fell prey to the fast food movement and weighed over 300 pounds. I started my 100-pound weight loss journey at 18 years old, and that led me to start my health food business at 21. And Manitoba Harvest has the claim to fame of helping pioneer the global hemp food industry. We grew the business to $100 million in sales, and in 2020, it passed $500 million in lifetime sales with over 16,000 retail partners and Millions of happy hemp heart customers, uh, and we were very fortunate to sell the business twice, the majority in 2015 to private equity, and then a full sale in 2019 to Tilray for $419 million. And now I'm helping other founders achieve their mission through investment, advisement, mentoring, and, and board governance. So I'm, I'm super stoked to, uh, to have this chat with Greg with you all. I've known Greg uh, for about 10 years. Uh, we met when... Greg was the chief marketing officer of Sambazon SIE. Um, it didn't take me long to realize that Greg was one of the smartest marketers that I'd met. Uh, he's definitely a gift to the natural products industry and has had a rich history of helping uh, both large and small natural consumer packaged goods brands uh, scale as an operator, as an investor, and as advisor and, and board member. Um, probably some companies that you've heard of, like Cashy, uh, which sold to Kellogg's back in the day, uh, Coca-Cola, Once Upon a Farm, uh, Fourth and Heart, uh, Noon Hydration, which announced they were uh, acquired last week, um, Lily Sweets, uh, which announced that they were acquired today, which may turn into a little bit of a party here, uh, as well as uh, Greg's baby, uh, Foodsters, uh, which he operates as CEO. So I, I feel blessed that I reconnected with Greg on Clubhouse, and we've been spreading the positive natural product vibe together over the last uh, several months. Welcome to Natural Product Founders Helping Founders, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for that amazing intro. You've definitely been a hero of mine uh, from day one being in this industry. Yours and Dr. Christopher's in the audience. 
who himself created a legendary brand. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. Do you want to uh, you want to start um, and just give us an intro on uh, even though you're a legend in the natural product space, some may uh, some may be new to the to the Greg Fleischman story. Do you want to just start and give us an intro on you and Foodsters and kind of any of the other roles, uh, and then we'll we'll jump into it. Yeah, I can do that. I so today, I guess as of today, um, I serve on a number of different boards, all in the natural product space, all consumer brands. So Lily's is one, and then Noon Hydration is another. Fourth and Heart Ghee, uh, which is the leading uh, ghee brand right now in the U.S. And then Once Upon a Farm, who I've been on a long journey with uh, since inception. And then I'm on uh, Fruitsters board, and then I feel like I'm leaving somebody out. But then also I'm on the board which uh, of Demeter Biodynamic USA, which I, I've been on there for a while, and I'm and for those who don't know, biodynamic is the purest form of agriculture on the planet. And I, it's a nonprofit, one of my favorite uh, things to do with my time. And then I have, uh, and then I have Foosters. And then I'm also a partner in uh, Cambridge Capital, which is a, a venture capital firm that focuses on the natural uh, consumer brand space. Also a partner in uh, Whipstitch Investment Bank. And then I have another firm not like Arlene, a brand building firm called Purely Righteous. So I think it's important to build this ecosystem that, uh, you know, to help enable the next generation of uh, natural and organic consumer brands, you know, from idea to profit and then an exit. I've got a nice little ecosystem going. And then Foodsters is in there too. Keep it fresh. Because it's hard to talk about operating a company if you don't actually operate one. Well, yeah, and I'd like to unpack that a little bit because, I mean, you've had a lot of success and, and for sure you could exist at, you know, the investor advisor board level, which I'd call it the less, less stressful uh, generally. But, you know, what what do you want to talk about what drove the, uh, uh, the, the, the back in operating and, and foodsters? Why am I the CEO, you mean? Yeah, why why are you taking it on the chin every day for foodsters? What's what's the what's the learning there for some folks? Well, I I you know I I, I well one we created it from scratch and I think the other is just sometimes you want that ability to guide a company the vision the mission a strategy and then all the moving parts. There is a skill set required in raising capital organizing a team, leading them. And, uh, I, you know, it felt like in this situation it was the right tool for the job. So uh, that is why I don't, you know, I, I hear a lot of CEOs talk about ego. They don't have one, but they really do. I, I don't really have an ego. I'm not doing this because I feel like I need to feel better about myself. It's more about this is my baby. I'm obsessed with it. And I feel like I'm the right tool for the job to lead it right now. That's awesome. I was going to make a donut joke there, but you know, I'm going to I'm going to hold my joke back for <laughs> for at least a little bit, at least a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, as you uh, as as you think about, um, you know, you're you're again, I, I give you props because and, and it's for real on the, on the smart marketing. Um, you know, you're, you you grew up in the marketing discipline, right? And and so I'm, I'm sure that that's the lens that you look through a lot of the uh, a lot of your opportunities on. But as you think about um, innovation. What what drives that you know uh, within you or process uh, you know can you can you uh, can give us some of your uh, your learnings on 
on good innovation? Yeah, and I, I would, I would, you know, the kind of marketer that I was was marketing strategy innovation. So I, uh, you know, with the roles that I had, it was more general management than just pure, just doing the creative side of marketing. I would say, um, what I like most about innovation, if you do it right, is it really is left and right brain. You're doing all the analytics. You know, you're looking at the category and where are those gaps? What do consumers care about? And then does your brand uh, fit wherever those gaps are in a way that consumers can get excited about? So I like doing all the research and then actually coming up with those ideas is just so awesome. Once you've done the analytics and you've created the sandbox, coming up with ideas and then that step of executing against them and then that last part where they're embraced by consumers – that whole process, uh, front to back, is the most fulfilling thing I, I do after leading and uh, supporting the team. That is my second favorite thing to do inside of companies. Appreciate that. How about um, what about your thoughts on uh, you know in the natural natural product space? Um, how you think about different markets in the uh, in the omni channel approach? You know, direct to consumer or or you know just and, you know, with your current brands or just generally, how are you thinking about to approach to the different markets? I mean, it has totally changed within the last year. I, I'm a big case study person, right? So as you look at brands and how they scale over time, even beginning with Kashi, you just see this trajectory that will lay out a three-year channel strategy. And I believe in the last year, it has just totally gotten rewritten. A couple of reasons. One, premium consumers are now shopping more from the internet, and then all these marketplaces have popped up. Uh, you know, 30% of people are, that we target are going buying their groceries online. So you just have to look differently now at how and where you're available uh, to connect with the consumer in a way that will be most profitable. So before it was, depending on where you were in scale, it was like, okay, start off, own the natural channel, and start dipping your tail in grocery, start playing around with mass like, like uh, you know, Walmart and Target, and then you start going and adding Costco in there. Along the way, you're folding in uh, all, all the online e-commerce, you know, your own website, direct-to-consumer, Thrive Market, Amazon, all the regional places like Fresh Direct. So I believe that's all written and it's been reversed. It's like almost if you're a natural brand right now and you want to scale and get to that 5 million, that 10 million mark, Without the capital intensity, you really want to own the internet first and then start going into physical retail. And that way, then you're connecting with consumers, you're building that traction, that advocacy, and enough of the uh, foundation such that you can really go into physical retail and that will justify paying the slotting and all the other costs that go with being on a shelf. And that, I, by, by the way, I think that is fresh thinking. And it is purely driven by this whole new world order that we have by this little old thing called COVID. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm in huge alignment and agreement with you on that. How, how do you, you know, just for people that are kind of facing that, because I think entrepreneurs are like, yeah, you have to you have to win the uh, your own website online, Amazon. Uh, how do you uh, how do you think about um, resourcing that from a uh, from a sales standpoint? Maybe even sales and marketing, but uh, you know, how have you seen that kind of change in uh, in the portfolio companies? 
There's, uh, I keep thinking of Sydney, by the way, down there chasing dreams, this amazing new snack brand. And she just partnered with a strategic, I, I was thinking like right now, if you do want to own the internet, um, particularly like Amazon direct consumer, then for me personally, you're bringing it a house and then maybe complementing the execution with a broker. So at Foodsters, we partnered with CA Fortune, a national broker, and they will manage walmart.com, target.com, and then also amazon.com. And then we have an internal, we've evolved the Salesforce, right? So the Salesforce that we have not only manages physical retail, but they're also able to um, manage online as well. And, and that includes direct to consumer. So this new modern salesperson is really digitally savvy. They're, they're marketers, they're salespeople, they can go into classic re physical retail, but also the, uh, the internet, and they can develop promo plans, they can work the brokers, they can work internal teams, and they are, uh, and they're, you know, financially, obviously, then they've got that financial capability and stewardship. So that, that's the evolution to me of, of selling right now. Um, so a mix of internal and then using some external resources to help execute. I like it. I, I'm not sure. I'm mean, like if from the brands that I see, it's you guys are, you know, you're, I don't know if the whole portfolio is co-packed or if you guys do any manufacturing, but I know you're, you're, you, you have a lot of experience in, in co-pack and this is my, this may be like a slow pitch for, cause you're, you're helping others out in this way, Greg, but like, how do you source co-packers kind of lessons learned from, for, for new founders listening on like building that supply chain? Um, you know, can you, can you help out there? You know, the, if you're doing anything innovative, it, it's going to be hard, right? So I think you expect that. I, I've talked to founders before, and they're like surprised that they've talked to 30 co-packers and haven't found a fit. I'm like, well, if you're doing something groundbreaking, expect to talk to a minimum of 100 co-packers. I think there's search criteria. Do they have capacity? Do they have good quality? Can you get the cogs right? And... Um, and is there a good working relationship? So there's these established criteria and, the, and these goals that you set when you're beginning a co-packer search. And then I think you're just beating the weeds. There's so many great sources out there. In fact, our Dropbox has a list of 3,000 co-packers, large and small. It's a great resource for anybody across every single category that uh, uh, folks can tap into. Curated list of uh, co-packers that are comfortable helping incubate a brand from scratch. So they, in all the boxes that I mentioned before, they'll check, you know, like they're good partners, everything I just said before about economics and whatnot. So you have an ops plan of what you're trying to do. You prepare that it's going to be a journey here and that you're using entrepreneurial characteristics and skills, like just the relentlessness and, uh, to make stuff happen and then and then use all those resources that you might get connected to this is one area when it comes to co-packer where i think having an advisory board or an expert inside the company or closely tied to it is critical uh, particularly at this stage because otherwise you know the, the finding co-packer search can take quite a while it could it could double and triple the amount of time you might have in your in that you're trying to allow for yeah, if you're not leveraging mentors, advisors, and maybe even somebody internal that has done that before, you just see people like two years go by and they're still trying to create something. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. I and thanks for sharing that. I, I say that all the time. It's just as hard running a Copac business as it is, you know, running your own manufacturing. It may be a little bit different, you know, capital intensity, but uh, yeah. And I think for all the the, the founders listening there, uh, Greg dropped a, a bit of a bomb on the uh, uh, on the the startup founder folder uh, information and. Uh, um, so Greg asked me, "Hey, do you want to uh, do you want to put together a uh, a folder of all the greatest stuff, uh, like a list of three thousand co-packers and um, you know modeling and uh, and other things to start up your natural product business?" And and he had done you know the majority of the work, but he tried to you know, be nice and include me, and and I'm hoping I'm adding some some value to it. But that is available to everybody um, for four easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine. Which is a joke. Or Doge. Yeah, which is a joke. It's because, uh, you know, we're here, and I think Greg and I share that share that uh, philosophy. We're here to help people. This is like natural product founders helping founders. So um, if you if that would be helpful for you, just uh, uh, send a message to Greg or I, and, and, and we'll get you the uh, get you the link, and, and you'll have access to those, uh, those tools. And just trying to bridge that gap and make it easier for people that are getting into the industry and making the world a healthier place to give you a uh, give you a hand up. So. But that's mostly big, I mean, the, that's mostly big props to uh, to Greg for uh, for like ninety nine percent of the organization. Well, it's, I think it's both of us, and we're getting other people adding to it every day. Like uh, Anthony there down below, uh, Anthony Brunetti, who has a, an investor in a digital marketing uh, firm, so he's going to put stuff in there. So hopefully, this has all those resources. People are like, where do where do we get a Copaco list? Because we got that. What about a projection model that's populated? that I can learn from and just put my own information. So we've got stuff like that. I think that Mike and I empathize what it's like to be a founder starting out from scratch. And we, we're not trying to make money off this. We're just saying, let's help. And so nothing in there is BS, really. They're all useful working tools. And then hopefully people who go in there will give us feedback um, as well, you know, on how to make it better, what's missing, which we modify or delete. And then Carl, uh, Carla McDonald, you know, uh, from Dynabrands, she's in the audience there. And uh, she, she runs one of the best uh, venture capital firms out there based in Austin. And so there's a, there's a little, um, you know, there's an Easter egg in there with a million dollars. So if you find it, she will uh, fund your business up to a million dollars. It's just great. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Carla right now is screaming. Yeah, no, I like totally that kidding. one. Yeah, everyone get the link and uh, and search for the Easter egg. Hey, on 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 investment, uh, you've you've been on both sides. You've been on on like all three or four sides of it. You're you've raised money. You're 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 investing money. You're you're involved in in investment banking. So you're helping people raise money or 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 divest their company. What are some of your learnings that you would share with kind of younger founders as they're as they're thinking about uh, um, you know their, maybe their first raise or their first big raise? Always take money from Carla McDonald. Um, the uh, I mean it, it's so tough. Like and and because some of this might contradict like some of our thesis, but I think you would agree, Mike. If you can do it when you're starting out, first number one is uh, build out that projection model that says your scale pace and sequencing of growth and how much capital you're going to need to fund the business for the first 24 months. I know some people say 18, just do it for 24 and expect to double whatever you put in there. And now you have to fund that, right? So, you know, step one is maybe you're getting friends and family to kick in at least 250. I think with all the brands that I've worked on and started from scratch, 
try and start with at least a million and a half to two and a half million to do it right. Uh, that's about what you need. Now you can bootstrap your way there, right? So you can do a little fun friends and family raise. You can look at all of the new credit facilities that are out there. So PO financing, factoring against AR, or just straight lines of credit that you're personally guaranteeing. And then the last resort, you have a great idea, you have a great team, is then maybe you're bringing in some venture capital after that. But if, you, if, if it's at all possible, wait until you get beyond that first convertible note to go to outside capital. Uh, but make that the last rule. Why? It adds new dynamics into the company, uh, and it also uh, dilutes you as a founder. And if that comes in too early, then that becomes demotivating over time. So, uh, But having said that, the other side of it is, if you do bring in good venture capital or outside capital, is that the, it should come with some value add and help you run the business more effectively. That's the dream anyways. And then the last point I would say, which I was kind of touching on there, is that uh, just like you're building an internal team, you're building a cap table too. It's meant for it to be highly collaborative, cohesive, great communication. So I would be very conscious of every uh, funding source being a cultural fit aligned with the mission, somebody that's strategic that might have a subject matter expertise or some value add that they're going to bring in against the strategy, but then bring them in similar with the mindset, similar to the way you would an employee. Um, easier, for sure, easier said than done. But I, I found when I think about Lilies and I think about Noon, which transacted in the last week, that's how it played out. Um, great cap table, and um, that that was really mirroring the management team and the rest of the organization. So, just a good example. No, I love that, and I, I mean, I it's uh, it, you don't probably. You can not learn that lesson until it's too late when you're a, a founder of you get over your skis and you raise you know too much money or the wrong money and your cap table is is bad and your your business could be good um, but you know for a successful growth all the way through and to have one of those exits um, that you know is probably one in a million in our industry even though Greg Fleischman has like ten or twenty or thirty trophies on the wall already or whatever it is uh, getting a new wall pretty soon. Um, you know, it, it, that, that, that setup of the cap table is, is as equally important as the fundamentals of the product and the team that you're, you're building, or you can paint yourself in a corner or hit a brick wall or whatever it is. And that's in the, uh, that's in the, our, the, the Fata Fleischmann Dropbox is in there, all, a whole bunch of resources around capital raising, you know, and I, I, I do believe that it's unbiased and objective. So hopefully people will find that useful. It's a great tool and only going to get better. I wasn't sure if uh, Paris came up. You know, Paris hosts extraordinaire. If she wanted, if I was doing something wrong, or, or if she wanted to ask a question, but I, I have a couple more. But we are going to get to a place where, um, you know, I know we have some some great uh, natural product founders in the audience and uh, and can learn from Greg and just learn from the uh, from 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 the room today. So um, we will get there. But Paris, anything that uh, before that, or was it was it? Thank you for having me, Mike. And to answer the, the question, you can do no wrong in my book. So I'm the wrong person to ask. This is amazing. What an opportunity to hear both of you and talking to each other is just gems all around. So thank you. Greg, congratulations. <laughs> Two massive bits of news the past week. I'm going to let you highlight that. But my question is, any of us who've gotten to work with you get an insider look. You're a master at people. And you talked about team building. 
I would love to know your rules for team building internally. And also, obviously, in, in all your negotiations, you have to deal with a lot of external people. How do you handle difficult people? Would love to know that. Thanks. My gosh, that's not an easy question. He sacrifices uh, them, Paris. That's what he does. He sacrifices thank, them. Thank you for, uh, by the way, thank you for uh, the kind words. I appreciate it. Um, the, uh, for those that don't know, Paris is an amazing, amazing collaborator with us on Venture Park and somebody we've gotten to know very well over the last several months here on Clubhouse as she's helped the Dragon's Dance become the best it could be. You know, I, I, like I, I think about uh, you building teams is absolutely one of the most important things, if not the most important thing you can do when growing a company because you can take a good idea and make it great because of the power of the team. So when you talk about difficult, what do I do with difficult employees? Well, I hope to never be in those situations. And how do you do that? Is by developing HR hiring practices. And it's never too early to do that. Some people might think, oh, it's overly you know, bureaucratic and it's bringing a nuclear weapon to a knife fight when you're just starting out. It doesn't hurt to say, here is the operating values of this company. So we've got our vision, our mission. But here's how we're going to behave as a company as we're bringing that vision and mission to life. And then those become basically job descriptions or criteria for what you would hire against so that all the staff that come in are already aligned. And then as a, as a puzzle you're putting together to make sure that not only are they aligned with the vision and the mission and the operating values of the organization, they can work now well with the rest of the team. So even if you have one, three, or five employees, getting them in on the hiring process as early as possible is so key so that everybody has a voice, but that they can visualize everybody all working together. And then, so after you've done all that, sometimes for whatever reason, it just starts to not work out. You know, the company might be growing too fast. There's something going on with the organization or the individual, and the misalignment occurs, and then you start seeing friction. So I think one way to, to, to minimize that is to do these regular check-ins. The company's humming together, everybody's working together. It shouldn't be a surprise if somebody is not feeling the fit, either the company or the individual. And so I think these like regular impromptu check-ins with everybody is so critical so there's no surprises. If you have a great, well-oiled machine filled with all people self-generating the Kool-Aid, if one of them goes off the rails, it should not be a surprise. So regular check-ins are, one, having really tight operating values clarified, really good hiring practices that involve all key members within an organization, and then doing regular check-ins. And then at that point, <clears throat> with somebody who's difficult, I, have this, I just have this desire to want to sit down and have human discussions with people. We have an organization, we have a job to do and get to know what's going on with somebody and figure out why it's not a fit. And nine times out of 10, they come to the realization that they're either going to plug back in or they're going to exit. But uh, I try not, you know, take the emotion out of it and put it on the business and the objectivity of those conversations usually help lead to a good outcome for everybody. But I, Paris, to back to your original question, I haven't had to do that very much because of that upfront preparation. It's like Eisenhower says, you know, luck 
favors the prepared. Well, that's the same for how you build teams. Greg, I got one more, and I think we're going to shift gears, and we're going to go into um, you know getting the audience. If there's founders in the audience, so get prepared. If there's uh, if you're a natural product founder, you can put your hand up, and we'll, we'll call you up on the stage in in a minute. But you're an investor, Greg. Do you want to just talk about um, you know opportunities you're looking for, kind of products you're looking for, founders you're looking for, scale of business, kind of what's the right fit for for you as an individual, and and then also for uh, for Cambridge. I feel like you and I are the same. The thesis, it's how, and it is about idea, and is it filling white space? Is it on trend? You know, all the usual checkpoints on that. You know, is there a really strong total addressable market so it's not super niche? There's something large to draw from that it may, it's hard to get into pre revenue. So, really like something with mind blowing traction. So, it's either growing at double the category average. There's just some metric that is unbelievable, and it's usually got double digits behind it, and there's justification for it. And it's all consumer-driven. It's not like, oh, we grew 100% year-on-year, and it's all driven by the fact that we expanded availability and, and doors. It was by velocity. And then we get into the team. I don't think it matters as much that they have a prior experience in the space or the companies they're running, but that they have hunger humility to learn, they have some sort of skill set that is transferable in that they have that, you know, ability to adapt and, and to an entrepreneurial environment where things never go to plan. And you see all these people that have worked at these juggernaut strategics and they try and go into and they got the best pedigrees ever. And then they go work inside of an entrepreneurial company and they just can't handle working eight hours a day and things not going to plan and not having a bunch of resources. Uh, so I look for that when kind of you can tell when somebody is built to be an entrepreneur and anything that is under 15 million in revenue tend to put more emphasis on the idea and the team that's going to go be executing against that idea. I feel like that was a huge ramble, but there you have it. No, I mean, that's, uh, that's good info. I mean, the questions keep coming up, right. From founders, like when do I raise and how do I position myself for a raise? I think getting the, uh, the view from an investor and, and, and one that, focuses in the natural product space is uh, is hugely helpful so i appreciate that hey anything uh, anything else that you want to share before we uh, shift gears no I, well i guess the last thing that i'm really excited about right now is any consumer brand having to do with mental health uh right now we are that's the epidemic within the pandemic it's like 35 percent of americans it's probably the same for just all of north america actually has some sort of, you know, clinical depression going on, you know, it makes sense. So people are building out products. They could build a nice thriving business if they're playing in that space. And then also weight management. It's always such a big area to begin with, but it's even, you know, important now because people have gained so much weight through the pandemic as they were comforting themselves with food. So those are the two areas I'm most excited is, uh, is actually there's three. So food technology, weight management and then uh anything to do with mental health anxiety or sleep you know i like that one do you have an example of of some for some of the founders that maybe are thinking about how it may fit into their product portfolio or just to to uh, expand their kind of innovation mindset on on the um, mental health in in the natural product space you got one that you uh, you like or you're tracking or yeah like zach williams pims as an example which is like a gummy that's got a couple of ingredients to help you with mood 
So uh, I like I, he's one of my favorite brands right now for that uh, that kind of area. Still trying to find a proper weight management brand, by the way, that isn't going to punish people's tape spuds and fits into one of their routines that they're already doing. You know, it's not some pill they got to take. Um, I haven't found one yet for that. On food technology, there's stuff for days, like uh, you know, Brave Robot, which is perfect day, right? Like, they, and some of that new alternative meat stuff um, that, that's coming out, like simulates, you know, chicken things that they got. So I like, some yeah, I like brands yeah. that are playing. Solcazine's a good one. Solcazine is one of those good ones, I think. Uh, and and I forget everything I said. Solcazine is it? Oh, that's a good one. I think it's going public actually in uh, in, in just a short little bit, maybe a couple days from now or something. I heard that. To the moon. Well, let's get this uh, party really started. I think that's just the warm-up, Greg, and it's nice to uh, be able to ask you some of those questions and your thoughts because you drop gems, and you're dropping gems all over Clubhouse in different rooms, but, you know, focus to the natural product founders, which I know that's your close to your heart, near and dear. That's where you spend your, your time. So um, thanks for thanks for that. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fata. That's it for now. See you next time.